Hey everyone, welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. Now, I'm old enough to remember the unparalleled Ed Sullivan. I don't know how many of you can remember him, but you may not want to admit it. And at the risk of sounding Sullivan-esque, I'm going to say we've got a really big show ready for you today on our podcast. We're going to be bringing to you an interview with M.H. Calway. That's Madeline Harris Calway, the author of Windigo Fire, Glowgrass and Other Stories, and a number of other stories, including award-winning short stories. Um, and Madeline is the pen name, M.H. Calway is the pen name of Madeline Harris Calway. In 2013, she and 14 friends together founded the Maydams of Mayhem. Madeline's debut survivalist thriller, Windigo Fire, was a finalist for the 2015 Arthur Ellis Best First Novel Award. Her dark suspense novella, Glowgrass, first published in 13 o'clock, was runner-up for the 2016 Arthur Ellis Best Novella Award. Her collected short fiction in Glowgrass and Other Tales by Carrick Publishing in 2016 ranges from comedy to noir. An avid runner, cyclist, and downhill skier, she has completed the Toronto Ride to Conquer Cancer every year since it began in 2008. She is currently completing the second book in the Danny Bluestone series, Windigo Ice, and that's something to really look forward to. Madeline's website is www.mhcalway.com, and she can be found on Facebook under Madeline Harris Calway and at Twitter at mcalway. So without further ado, I'm going to get Madeline on the line, and it's a real treat for you. Hello. Hi, Madeline. It's Donna. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So anyways, I wanted to get you on here and talk to you a little bit about your writing and uh, other things in life, because we've known each other for quite a long time. And uh, uh, the first thing I want to ask you, Madeline, is what was your first foray into fiction writing? And how did you know it was okay. something that you wanted to pursue? Well, I, I started writing in grade school. And um, what happened was my mom and I um, drove up to Jasper, and I couldn't have been very old. I think I was just about six or seven. And um, in those days, there were quite a few bears wandering around. People would give the bears chocolate bars. And, I mean, I know I was a, I was a little kid, but I was smarter than that. I figured this was a pretty dumb thing to do. And lo and behold, this bear attacked our car because my mother didn't have the chocolate bars. I thought this was a wonderful adventure as the bear pounded its paws on my on the driver's window, but of course my mother was far more sensible and drove off. Anyway, when the teacher asked us to write a, a story, I wrote this one up and I got an A++++, just like the Christmas story. Oh, very and, good, yeah. <laughs> I thought, well, okay, um, I'm... That that works for me. Yeah, I, I wasn't talented at anything else. I couldn't sing. I couldn't dance. I couldn't throw a ball, but I could write. Oh my God, that sounds like my story. I wonder how many writers are. <laughs> <laughs> but in your case, it's really not true. I mean, you're very athletic as well, and and you do all kinds of things. You're also a gifted scientist, and and I mean, I had none of those things going on. I was like the scorekeeper at every hockey game and every oh. softball game. I was always the scorekeeper. 
You know? Well, they would always fight about who they were going to, who would take me. Because they didn't <laughs> want me on the team. <laughs> you take her. No, you take her. Oh, no. So this is how we all end up in writing. And here I thought it was because we had these brilliant ideas, you know. <laughs> Well, maybe as we're sitting there scorekeeping, we do uh, we have nothing else to do but to think of brilliant ideas. Yes, yes, and we used to get back at them all for being better at athletics than us. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, when I got older, the sports that that I participated in were more solitary uh, sports, where you can kind of go at your own pace and improve at your own pace. You know, like biking and running. And yes. Skiing. Yes. Yes. Um, what about true crime? Do you read a lot of true crime, and do you find that it helps or hinders your storytelling? I do read a lot of true crime, and I'm fascinated by it. And it, it's strange, isn't it, that many crime fiction writers don't read true crime. But um, Is, that, is yeah. that true? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, we, you know, when we've been on some of our panel discussions, um, I'm quite surprised sometimes when, you know, our fellow authors will say, well, I just don't read it. Because um, I find it, it it really is like truth is stranger than fiction. Yes. Yes, I completely agree. I mean, I read barrels of true crime. I'll go on true crime binges, and then I'll have to stop because the dark side of society starts <laughs> to take over your mind, and it's like, okay, time for some Disneyland now, you know? Yeah, really. It tends to erode your faith in human nature, I have to say. I. Yeah, and probably quite rightly, judging, <laughs> probably quite rightly, judging by everything we know about the current times, you know. Oh, yeah, gosh. Yeah. Who are your favorite well, true crime there. authors? Uh, who are your favorite true crime authors? Well, I have uh, quite a few, and um, um, I guess, you know, in, uh, one of my all-time favorite uh, is uh, P.D. James. Oh, um, yes. You know, was a wonderful stylist and really, really got, had wonderful, complex characters. Um, um, sort of more recently, I, I've gone in for more of a Western flavor, I guess, because I really um, got into C.J. Box. I had never read any of his books until I went down to um, a conference in, in the Southwest and where he was speaking, and they talked about um, the Joe Pickett novels. And um, anyway, I was totally blown away. They were they, they draw you in. They're full of action. They're and they have fascinating characters. And, now that's C K Box. How do you spell no, Box? C J. Oh C J. C J. And how do you Box. spell? B O X, just like it sounds. Okay, so our listeners, if you want to look up C J. Box, and it's the character is Pickett. It's Joe Pickett novels, and and I excuse my cold here. <laughs> Oh, no, that's all right. In, with Canadian writers, of course, I, I've always really loved uh, Louise Penny's novels and um, Peter Robinson's novels. But I, I do, more than anything, I really enjoy reading the novels of my friends and, you know, people that perhaps haven't had as much promotion or as much recognition as they should. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that I'm always finding these little jewels. Yes, and, uh, along the path, and that's where, where I I spend most of my reading time these days. Okay, that's a, that's time well spent, I think. Um, I know I've always just loved Anne Rule. Have you read any of Anne Rule's work? I read every book she ever wrote. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> 
gosh, same here. And whenever somebody newly discovers Anne Rule, I always just light up like a Christmas tree because, yes, I've known this for many years. The, th the thing I really treasure about her is her deep respect for the people that she writes about. Um, yes. She really does not sensationalize I mean, of course, most of these crimes are so hideous that they require no sensationalizing. Um, but she has great respect for the victims and for the families of the victims uh, that she writes about. And so she takes great pains to stick with the facts and to, to tell the story that way. So as far as true crime goes, if our listeners are looking for motivation there, I really highly recommend Anne Rule. And I second that, Donna. I, I completely agree with you. I, I think I, too, especially appreciate that she um, understands how the impact of a crime on, on the victim and the victim's family, and, uh, and I think and she writes in a very sympathetic way. Yes. And also, also her stories are very satisfying in, in that they're a moral tale. Yes. Which is why I think a lot of people read crime fiction. Because these bad guys, many bad guys and girls, I mean, she writes about some, some female uh, criminals as well, yes. but uh, these bad actors, I guess we'll call them, they really are bad from the get-go a lot of times. Like, you can see that there were many, many instances that should have triggered an alarm for people when, um, when things were going on early in their lives, you know? Oh, yes, I know, and... Um... Well, you know, our mutual friend Rosemary O'Bear is a criminologist. Yes. She mentions that some of these um, danger signals show up at a very young age, you know, like, a, you know, as age four and five. Yes. Yes, that's quite right. And, uh, you know, I mean, yes, I do believe that people can be rehabilitated, but uh, not all people. I mean, no, my I reading and my own life experience has led me to believe not all people, unfortunately. And I think that uh, where the danger lies for the general public is in not always knowing the difference. I, I agree with you completely. And when I worked for the Ministry of Health, I, I worked with um, a couple of people who had actually worked at Penetang, oh. which is the hospital for the criminally insane or the institution there. And, and I did ask them, you know, well, is rehabilitation possible? And, and they all said no. Yeah, not for these hard, hard cases that they're dealing with, definitely. At least not uh, complete and thorough uh, rehabilitation. And, um, you know, I mean, r redemption in terms of some of the hardest criminals may be only in the form of doing their time because there may be no other real form of redemption. I mean, that sounds terribly judgmental, I know, but if we read the the books and the literature and the studies on these people it's it's really hard to come away with any other point of view um, I agree but how does it how does it affect your actual writing reading the true crime well I think what it does is that it, uh, my stories end up my short stories end up they don't have a happy ending <laughs> yes <laughs> which is not the kind of story that I I personally enjoy reading and uh, perhaps I should rethink that uh, Louise Penny uh, puts down her success to writing about the people that she wanted to read about. Yes. And, uh, and when she created uh, Inspector Gamache, that was the, the kind of detective that she wanted would want to solve a, the murder in her village. I find it difficult to see life that way, and I, I tend to have, I guess, a more pessimistic view. 
But don't you think you kind of have to write what's in you? Like, this is what I always tell people, um, newbies in the writing world. I always tell them, write what's in you, because there really is nothing else, and there's no other path. I agree with you, Donna. And I, I think it's it's like what they say in, in business school, which is that, you know, everybody, you're drummed you have to be market-driven, not product-driven. And I know that crime fiction is in many ways a business, but also as an artist, I don't think you can anything other than product driven because yes. as you said it's it's in you and this is the way you express things verbally how you see the world and in our intuition and our thought processes and our wordsmithing that all reflects what's going on in our inner life and our our, our, interview, our view of the world. Yes, I agree. I really do. And because crime fiction is both a product and an art, I mean, I tend to lean towards the art of it. I've worked in business my whole life, and I do know that there's a distinct difference between crime fiction and accounting. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and for me, the, the, the fiction really truly is an art, and as an art, it's got to be expressed that way. Um, now, that's not true for everybody, and I've read some, some really good market-driven work you know, there are things that I absolutely love that I know are written to a formula. So I'm not going to say that I'm a purist on this. But for myself, I've got to write the stories that I feel. Yeah, I feel the same, absolutely. And so, but, you know, uh, you know, one of the things about um, um, when, when I worked at the ministry, I, I did get involved with this um, investigation of, of deaths, of mysterious deaths at sick kids. Hospital. I was going to ask you about that, in fact. Yeah. You were part of a scientific team that investigated, um, just for our listeners uh, who don't know this, you may recall the mysterious deaths at the Sick Children's Hospital in Toronto, and um, Madeline actually worked on the team that investigated those scientific de those mysterious deaths. Um, so, Madeline, tell us how that influenced your crime writing. Well, I think what it is, we were involved on doing this investigation for six months. It was, uh, I, the, I got on the team, I was the junior person, the junior, junior, this is early in my career. Junior, I junior have, to the junior? <laughs> you know, kind of junior Much junior, like the junior, Trump turncoats, they're all coffee boys, right? <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I got served coffee, so that was okay, I didn't have to bring coffee. Oh, that's but, terrific. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, it, it was one of those things, I was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And uh, I got um, appointed to the team. They wanted somebody with a scientific background, and and so I, I ended up there. Um, it was um, a very long process because this is before we really had any computers. Oh. Certainly, certainly in the government, we did not. This is in the early 80s. So the government, of course, lagging behind the private sector quite substantially, didn't have any computer capabilities, really, and neither did the hospitals, which is probably why those deaths occurred. So, and we didn't certainly have the expertise in Ontario to do this. What the government ended up doing was uh, engaging the CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control Atlanta, that did have the right expertise, and they led the team. And, and a few of us here at the ministry assisted them. Now, you made a comment in there about how if there had been a computer-based um, logging and tracking within within the organization, the deaths may not have occurred. Uh, what exactly do you mean by that? Would, would, was it a case of um, 
Was it a case of it would have been alerted much earlier if there had been a... Okay. Okay. Yes, exactly. Um, What it is, one of the things that the the lead scientists recommended uh, at the end of the study was that they would be keep a very close view on the mortality rates because the mortality rates on that particular ward were 600% oh, dear. beyond what one would expect. So even if yeah. there was no foul play, and there would almost have to be with that kind of rate, but even if there wasn't foul play, there was something else going on, either exactly. some type of microbot or something that was just rampant in the area. Absolutely, absolutely. There's something very seriously wrong going on. But I think it, it became pretty clear, I think, um, the police had been in there, they had been investigating, but the police, of course, didn't have this expertise either. So um, the government thought that they needed to have a scientific investigation sort of running in parallel with the police investigation. How long and, did it take to unravel what was going on? Well, it had gone on for quite a few months, and I remember one of the doctors telling our team that um, and he was the one who uh, basically um, blew the whistle, I suppose, and and said, look, if one more um, death like this occurs, I am calling the police, and, and, and that's exactly what happened. It's um, unfortunately, murders in a hospital setting are not as rare as one might hope. I keep hearing this all, during the past two weeks, I've heard recurring variations on that theme that one crime or another is a lot more common than you think. I don't know. I think I must be some kind of Pollyanna because I assume because I don't rob, steal, kill, or maim people that most other people don't either. But I keep hearing from people lately, oh, you know, a lot of people do that. And now you're saying that murder in a hospital is more common than we think? Yes, that was what um, Dr. Bueller told me. And, um, uh, I mean, uh, one of the things, my boss, Rick, who actually was not involved directly in on the team, but, of course, you know, that I would, you know, would report to Rick regularly. Um, my, my, my boss, Rick, became so fascinated by this case that he left public health and became a forensic psychologist. And oh, wow. Rick and I would have these long discussions um, afterwards, you know, and I'd say, well, I could not understand how anyone could do such a thing. Like, I, I would say, why would somebody do this? And, and so you're looking for reason where there is no reason. I know yes. because I've beat my head against that wall many times in my life. And, you know, I guess it's only as we get a little bit more mature that we start to understand, you know, looking for reason is maybe the wrong question because there is no reason. I, I think it, people do think very differently, I think. It, it, I mean, one, one tends to assume that everyone thinks in the same way. As, as you do yourself. Yes. But but that that may not be true. We are the and benchmarks for our own universe. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. And, and so and that it fascinated me, and I never had read any true crime until after I worked on that case. And after that, that's when I developed my my uh, interest in, in reading true crime, because I, I kept delving through this, trying to find a reason you know, a rational reason. And did writing and reading crime help you come to some understanding? I I think it is one of these unknowable questions, ultimately. And I think that there you, you don't know, but it doesn't, but it's a good process to look because in a way, you know, you can, you know, strengthen your own beliefs 
and, uh, yeah. and the, your own beliefs in the justice system. Yeah. And and you know and what you know what constitutes good and evil. Yes. Perhaps come to a better understanding of that. Yes. So I think the process is, is a good one, but I don't necessarily know that there's an absolute answer. I mean, the, I think the older I get, the more I believe that there are some questions that there are no real answers to it, no absolute answers. That's right. Or if they are out there, we're not equipped to find them. Um, you know, and that, this is one of the things that I really love about doing this podcast, Madeline. You and I have been friends for a long time. I don't yeah. know if I, I made that clear to our listeners. Um, you're not just an author out there that I, I don't know or met casually. And yet, you know, this is a chance to have this kind of conversation that, that kind of goes way beyond the surface. And I, I just love that, you know. Um, me too, me too. And, you know, like, yeah, we were trying to, you know, rush back to the to the family or you have to rush back to work and Yes, you know, yes, we're exactly. Where our lunch is. Exactly, <laughs> that's right. And uh, you know, also it segues really well into what I wanted to ask you next, um, which has to do with snake oil, which I'm I'm yeah. going to be reading in our readers on the run segment right after this interview. So stay with us, everyone. And oh, it was great. featured in 13 Claws by the May Dams of Mayhem and was, of course, written by M.H. Calway, Madeline Harris Calway. And uh, also, uh, there's a sense in that book, in that story, it's really a novella, but uh, we call it a short story for purposes of the anthology. There's a distinct sense of frustrated revenge. Um, I really picked that undercurrent up in a few of your stories, and I wondered... Whether and maybe maybe I've already started to glean a bit of the answer to this question based on your experience in the hospital. Is there an undercurrent that you're aware of that might have led you to a job in justice in a different lifetime? Well, yeah, I often wondered. You know, would wouldn't it be fascinating to work on a, the cold case investigations? And you know, in another life, perhaps I would have um, you know become a police detective. I ended up. I did actually work with the police officers at, uh, at, for a few years. I mean, as part of the public health branch, we were looking at um, taking care of VIP visitors. And you can knock out a lot of, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this on radio. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, go ahead, say it. <laughs> faster with food poisoning than you can with bullets. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, my, and also, it's, of course, tremendously embarrassing for the... Canadian government if people get food poisoning from the banquet. So uh, I so that was what that was what my job was. But um, I got to know quite a few police officers, and um, I really respect what they do. Uh, but I don't think that I could handle that unrelenting, unrelenting neg- negative. That's the part I would have a problem with, being in the front line, and and I think that's why our respect goes so thoroughly to those people on the front line of the force. Um, I agree with you that it would be fascinating to work behind the scenes on the analytical portion, especially with your scientific background. I mean, that would be something that would be really fascinating, but um, to be right there face-to-face with with people, um, I know what it's like to some degree because of other parts of my life. Um, and it's not something I could do on an unrelenting daily basis, I don't think. Yeah. I remember a homicide uh, detective came and spoke to us at, at the Crime Writers of Canada and told us that the average um, rotation through the homicide division is, is four years. Wow, that's and, the limit, is it? Yeah, and then usually, and, and he had actually been there for seven. 
I guess he was a pretty uh, resilient guy, and he had a kind of he had a very black sense of humor. <laughs> Maybe that's what got him. <laughs> you would have to have, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. But I think what I do really enjoy about it is the justice that that is served when you do go back and you look at the cold cases. Now, through science, it's so much more fascinating because the forensics has advanced so much, especially with DNA analysis. Yes, yes. We now can solve mysteries. I know. If I knew about DNA when I was first coming up through school, I think I might have ended up going into the sciences uh, more heavily, certainly, than I did because it's fascinating. There's, there's a great book out, speaking of books, because <laughs> we are always speaking of books. Um, yes. There's a great book out called The Seven Daughters of Eve, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to beg a mental block right at the moment. I cannot come up with the author, but if our listeners want to Google it or look on Amazon for it or on any one of your other retailers, it's called The Seven Daughters of Eve, and it's a... a it's a true depiction in layman's terms of the unraveling of the study of DNA and wow. how it came about, the beginning of it, and what they now know. And it, again, it's written in layman's terms. It's just brilliantly written by the scientist. I wish I could come up with his name right now. Um, one more time, Seven Daughters of Eve. Look it up for sure. It's really great. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I think that's what I really enjoy in, in the forensic files is when the police officers use science and, and, and they get an, when the evidence becomes very clear yes. that the perpetrator is. And even, even sometimes the cases that don't have anything to do with crime but have more like to do with the public health branch where I worked, which was disease investigations. One of the forensic files that dealt with the hantavirus, which is a very lethal virus carried by mice. Mm -hmm. in the southwestern United States and actually ended up killing quite a few people down there. Oh. And they used the same methodology to trace back to find the origin of the illness and, and what, what caused these people's illness. Yeah. Yeah, that would be really a fascinating job. I got a couple more questions for you before yes. we close up. Um, one is uh, related to a private conversation that you and I had uh, a lot of years ago. I can't remember how many. When you told me, we were talking about how you keep the action moving in your work. And something that you told me always stayed in my mind, that you see the action scenes like a movie camera. And you try yeah. to do that throughout the whole work. How does that work? For, for the benefit of our listeners, this is going to be your tip for our writers today because I'm asking everybody for a tip for writers. How do you force your mind into that particular frame where you can see your story unravel? I, I think it, it, I'm going to get a bit mystical here. But when, when people talk about dreams and when people talk about imagination, it, it is like a film or is, is a film really a projection of our dreams. And there's a lot of analogies that people make between dreams and and the movies. I grew up in, in the movies. My mother loved the movies. And so I, I was going to films from a very young age, from the age of three. So I've grown up and um, it sort of steeped in, in movies. And uh, to me, I was as much in love with films as I was in love with books. So I, I don't, I tend to, when I was reading a book, I would see it as a movie, and I would, and, and the visuals would be very strong. 
I think it's it's how I view stories anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this helps. <laughs> no, it does help. It helps a lot. And I, I don't like to get into gender discussions too much because being a woman, there's no winning that particular discussion. You got that right. <laughs> but uh, I have read studies that show that men tend to think in terms of visuals and women tend to respond most to audios. And that always stayed with me because I know that women, even when we're listening to music, when we hear a deep, very white voice, you know, um, it, it, it's something that women tend to really respond to. Whereas men, the men I know, certainly, if something is flashy or visual, they're very responsive to it. So, you know, maybe you've just tapped into something that, that makes it, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say there. I think I'm oh, trying to say that some of the things that I enjoy about certain books that we call very action-oriented, you've been able to tap into that. Yeah, I guess it's because that, that's that's how I see the world. I, I tend to see the world very much in a visual way, more mm-hmm. than hearing. And maybe, you know, some of our brains are not, you know, we we tend, we, we're talking about a Gaussian distribution here, you know. Yes. And, and, and so, you know, like maybe I'm more in the middle, <laughs> stimulated <laughs> by more vis- by visuals as well as... Well, whatever it is, it works. Audio. And it works in your use of colors, too. I mean, uh, I'm thinking of Windigo Fire, which was a terrific book, by the way. I read it in its pre-publication stages, and yes. uh, it was beautiful then, and it's even more beautiful now uh, with all the polish that went into it. Um, also, Amder's Cat and Glowgrass and just a number of stories where color just is woven throughout, um, and it's subtle. It's not like the reader is not being beat over the head with all these colors, um, but they're always there, and you can almost stop at any point in the page and feel a color, even if it's not stated, you know? Well, is that something that you're aware of? Um, no, actually not. And But uh, the other thing that... But I do, like, love contrast, and especially... Um, Film noir and expressionistic films, where you know you have that great contrast between light and shadow. Yes. And and, and so my members of my writing group have often commented to me that much of my action takes place at night, and which is absolutely true. And I haven't, or, or, or in, in darkness, which I haven't really thought of. But I think maybe that is because of my love of film noir and and, and expressionistic films, and that's again, how I, I see the world. Mm-hmm. But but to segue back to what you were asking me, um, Donna, about what, what tips I could offer our, our listeners when they're writing, it, it was a tip that was given to me very early on when I was just starting to write, which was to write, when you're writing an action scene, write it how as if you were experiencing it. And if you do it on any sports or anything like that, you can draw on how you feel. Yes. When you feel tired, when you feel dehydrated, when your muscles hurt, or you know, if you what the ground feels like under your feet. Yes. And, and, and to draw on those experiences and and uh, use that to color your action sequences and to make this um, more believable. Yes. I mean, fortunately, none of us have been shot at. No. We, no. So far, I'm sure once I've interviewed enough authors, I'll come across one who um, who has been shot at. But so far, no nobody that I've uh, asked has been shot at. 
<laughs> oh, so what is next in your writing world, Madeline? Um, what is Danny going to be doing next? And and please tell us Danny's full name because he's the protagonist in Windigo Fire, and I believe he's the protagonist in your next book, which I'm going to let you title. Which is called Windigo Ice, and uh, yes, and it's Danny Bluestone will be back with many of the characters that were in Windigo Fire. Um, we can't have Canada without a winter. No. And again, to go back to what I was saying, how you experience cold, if you want to write about the cold, especially in Toronto, all you have to do is just step outside. Exactly. <laughs> That's true. So sad, so sad. It's really cold right now. Misery, that feel that utter misery and convey that to your readers down in Florida what it's really like to be out when it's like minus 24. Yes, yes, because they really, I mean, a lot of people really still, they can't visualize it. They can see a picture, but they can't visualize what it's like. Yes, that's right. In fact, a friend of mine who came from Vancouver and didn't have any idea how cold it really was in Ontario, and when she got off the plane, all she had on was the raincoat, which was perfectly good in Vancouver, but her raincoat actually cracked. Oh, anyways, Madeline, I think that's it, because I'm going to be reading um, from uh, Snake Oil for our Wonderful. readers on the run. And I want to thank you for joining us today for this interview. It's been really great talking to you. And always a pleasure to talk to you too, Donna. This has been just absolutely wonderful. And uh, I urge all the, the uh, listeners out there to, turn, to tune in to Dead to Rights because you're going to be hearing some wonderful Canadian authors who are going to be coming on board and, uh, and talking with Donna and sharing their work. Yeah, I can't wait to get them all on here. But I really can't wait to go live with this one. Madeline, before we hang up, can you please uh, tell your website to our listeners? Yes, my website is um, www.mhcallway.com. And Callway is spelled C-A-L-L-W-A-Y. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Donna. Have a great night. You too. Bye. Bye. Well, that was fantastic having M.H. Calway, Madeline Harris Calway, here on Dead to Rights today. And I really want to thank her for the terrific tips she gave to writers. For anyone who may not have heard, her tip for writers today was when you're writing an action scene, write the scene as though you are in it, as though you are a part of it. Draw on your own experiences in life to make the scene more real. And that gives us a chance to get into our very first contest giveaway. If you'll go to our Dead to Rights Facebook page and look for the question, what was M.H. Calway's tip for writers? And if you'll correctly answer that it was to write action scenes as though you are a part of them, then you'll be entered into the draw to win an Amazon gift certificate. And hope you'll participate. Looking forward to seeing you at the Dead to Rights Facebook page. And now for our Readers on the Run segment, Snake Oil by M. H. Calway. Young women marry money. Women of a certain age turn to real estate. Mean words with an icy sliver of truth, Bella thought. Beyond her BMW's cracked windshield, dry snow whirled down the empty residential street. Only one word could describe February in Toronto, and that word was bleak. She thumbed through her freshly printed business cards. Gilt-edged, copper-plate writing, 
old-fashioned but classy, because class was all she had left. She couldn't trump the swag that adorned the business cards of her young rival, John, with their QR codes and laser hologram logos that rotated and winked at you. She hugged herself and breathed in and out in desperate self-affirmation. I can do this. I know I can do this. She'd taken a careful look-see drive down the street earlier. Maintenance of the houses, so-so. Roof tiles crumbling on many. Paint flaking off a few others. And not a single for-sale sign on the street. Not even one. Hardly promising. Still, it was February, and houses didn't sell in winter. Maybe this street is a street of junk, she thought. The no-hopers that Wolfband Realty dumped on its junior agents. The failed renovations, the hoarder palaces, the fire traps, the termite infestations, the abandoned grow-ops, the murder houses. But there was one prize, the brick Victorian halfway down the north side of the street. Its large lot meant money. Maybe even big money. God, she'd give anything to get a peek inside. One of Wolfband's legendary business coups dealt with a neglected Riverdale mansion. When the new owners tore down its dingy ceiling tiles, they'd uncovered beautiful ornamental medallions and crown molding, all museum perfect. HGTV had featured the historical home's restoration, with Wolfband's perspicacity greatly credited. I could pull that off, too. I've got an eye for quality. All I need is a chance. But how to talk her way inside that brick Victorian? She hadn't a clue where to begin. She'd had no practice because, damn it, Amelia hadn't given her a chance to sell anything. Amelia, brilliant top agent Amelia. Wolfband's greatest legend centered on a semi-detached house where an elderly woman had been lying dead for a month. Amelia sold the corpse-free half of the semi after convincing her young buyers that the strange stink permeating their prospective home would dissipate once they installed a working sewer backup. Hence the proffered 5% discount. The young couple took the bait, and with it Wolfband's homegrown guarantee— you bought it, you got it. Inevitably, the dead body was discovered. Just as inevitably, the paramedics were wheeling it out on the day of closing. Even better, at the exact moment when the new owners landed on their new front porch, brandishing their shiny new house key. Did they flee in horror? No way. They moved in as planned. As first-time buyers, they didn't have a cent left over for a lawsuit. But the coup de grace came four days later, when Amelia unloaded the tainted half of the semi. Admittedly at a deep discount, but a sale nonetheless. And those thrifty buyers also stayed put, 
champagne all around. And the overarching moral of this story? At Wolf Band Realty, business ethics was an oxymoron. Okay, I can accept that. In fact, I'm more than fine with it, Bella thought. So why the hell won't Amelia do what she's supposed to do as my mentor and help me? From the first day of her realtor internship, Bella couldn't get a read on Amelia. Couldn't connect with her. Hardly auspicious. What more can I do, she thought. Suck up even harder? Land cash-rich buyers and drop them at Amelia's feet like a good little kitty, bringing home a dead mouse? She'll just swipe my commissions. I just know it. I can tell. Now that she'd turned off her aging BMW's engine to save gas, a chill had settled throughout its interior. The whine of the winter wind buffeting the sides of the sedan only intensified her sense of isolation. There must be more money. There must be more money. Lately that phrase from the D.H. Lawrence story, The Rocking Horse Winner, had surfaced from her teaching days and mutated into a stubborn brain worm. Her English students never appreciated the doom and inevitability of the tale. They considered the merciless exploitation of a small child by his greedy parents a trite, overdone scenario. She'd only succeeded in boring them, exactly as her ex, Barry, had predicted. The way I bored him, too. After Barry walked out, she'd sworn to keep her lifestyle. No way would she let that deserting rat destroy her. But Barry didn't believe in alimony. How else could he afford three ex-wives and a grand lifestyle? Damn foolish to sign that prenup. What had she been thinking? But luckily, her lawyer had managed to register their Moore Park home in both their names. Oh, Barry had argued and wrangled and shouted, but in the end, he gave in. His new fiancée was getting restless. Moore Park became hers, free and clear, and rightfully so. She damned well earned it. She redecorated at once to wipe away every trace of Barry. She continued to shop at Holtz and to party with her friends at the golf club. Life, at first, proved far more pleasant without Barry around, sulking and picking at her faults. But over time, the costs of running the Moore Park house ate through her investments like cancer. In the end, she'd been forced to unload everything, and quickly, too. She'd had to quit the golf club, cut up her credit cards, How quickly her friends had vanished. How fast she dwindled into an unhappy warning of what happened when a wealthy husband grew bored or felt unfulfilled or feared growing old. There must be more money. There must be more money. Strangely enough, her stepson, Robert, remained her ally. They met for coffee from time to time, usually at Balzac's in Union Station before he caught the go train back home to his wife and kids in the suburbs. I'll never understand Dad, Robert confided. I really had my hopes up for the two of you. 
You seemed so perfect together. I mean, you both loved golf and traveling, and third time lucky for Dad, right? Second time for me, Bella put in. She'd settled for Martin, rather than endure her forties as a single woman. Poor Martin. Boring, suburban, predictable, safe. The golf club had saved her. Hard work to land Martin's golf buddy, Barry. Harder work to pry him loose from wife number two and to persuade him to commit. But the hardest work of all had been trying to keep him happy. Ultimately, the golf, bird-watching, and world cruises had failed. Socializing with his contemporaries proved to be a constant, unpleasant reminder of his age. It's like the day he turned 65 he lost his mind, Robert said. Number four is 32. She's five years younger than me, for God's sake. And do you know what the old fool is up to now, he went on? He's doing the Dakar rally from Bolivia to Argentina with that woman on a two-seater motorbike. Insanity. He's going to get himself killed, and her, too. Good, Bella thought. I hope he does die. I hope his motorbike crashes into a cliff and they burn alive. I hope the bandito ass-rape him and slit his throat, and they gang-rape her and cut her into little pieces while she's still alive. But Barry and wife number four didn't die. Their motorbike broke down almost immediately, and they were out of the race. No, Martin was the one who died in a single-car crash on the Gardner Expressway. Suicide, the police hinted. She'd never learned for sure because Martin's family had cut her off. They even barred her from attending his funeral. Some dark, lonely days, she wished she'd turned her pricey Henkel carving knife on Barry instead of attacking the Christmas turkey during their last epic fight. Raw flesh everywhere. Not that Barry's deserving death would save her from the latest financial crisis. She hadn't told Robert the full story. Too embarrassing. When Barry finally married her, she'd quit teaching to live the lifestyle she deserved. At the time, the prospect of a seriously diminished pension seemed irrelevant. Chump change. But now she couldn't even cover her rent, let alone her debts. She let slip that she'd have to move again soon. Robert threw her a look. Bella, are you having money problems again? Look, I know it's been a while, but why don't you go back to teaching? No, you idiot, Bella wanted to shout. The board would never hire me back. Too many years and too many burned bridges. Then her hairstylist described how her cousin had made a fortune in real estate. Sparked by desperation and vengeance, Bella seized on the idea. When she was forced to unload the Moore Park home, she'd been outfoxed, cajoled, and finally bullied into a price well below its market value. Rearmed with knowledge, she could beat those real estate snakes at their own game recoup the money she'd lost, and buy back her house. I don't know about you and real estate, Robert said, after she outlined her plans. You taught high school. You've never done sales. 
But she passed the real estate board exam with flying colors. That's great, Bella. Brilliant, Robert said. Go push condos for a developer. You'll earn a good salary, work regular hours. I can't live on some pitiful salary, Bella cut him off. I need to make decent money. That means high-end, exclusive properties. Only high-end. Okay, sure, but you'll be showing empty houses to people you know nothing about. Going into the homes of strangers. A woman alone. Anything can happen. Take it from me, there are a lot of weirdos out there. Really, Robert, it's not like I'll be showing dumps. Weren't you listening? High-end properties. Only high-end. That screens out the weirdos right there. But life after Barry had a way of not working out. Any hope she'd had of hiring on at Wolfband Realty after her internship had quickly evaporated. From the first day, Amelia anointed the other intern, John, as the chosen one. No doubt because he was much younger and more stylish, as well as adept at technology that terrified or confused Bella. These days, the Chosen One talked over and around her as though she didn't exist, indifferent to the fact that she overheard everything he said. Despite what he thought of her, if he thought about her at all, she wasn't stupid or oblivious. Yesterday, she'd taken charge, done what she should have done in the first place. Drafts blew through the BMW. Bella flexed her gloved fingers to get the blood flowing. She studied her reflection in the driver's mirror and fluffed her short blonde hair. Was that a glint of pink scalp? No, it was this strange daylight. It had to be. Her hair was not getting thin. She was simply being paranoid, as Barry loved to tell her. Though I guessed right about you and number four, she thought, and shivered. She hadn't dressed for the weather this morning because she'd dressed for the part. To make money in real estate, dress like you're rich already. Amelia's latest pearl of wisdom hastily dropped. Her not-so-thinly-veiled criticism had stung, though Bella conceded that her image needed some sprucing up. But how? She was buying groceries on her credit card, for God's sake. There must be more money. There must be more money. Still, classic styles lasted forever, right? So last night she'd hauled out her favorite coat from the back of the closet. Scarlet cashmere wool, full cut with long fringed front panels like scarves. To her horror, she spotted a moth casing on the floor right underneath it. Another moth casing fell out when she stripped off the plastic shroud of the dry cleaner's bag. Her frantic search uncovered two tiny holes on the inside sleeve. And the drafty air inside the BMW couldn't hide the solvent smell of the black marker pen she'd used to paint out the scratches on her fancy ankle boots, scratches that shoe polish had failed to cover. A sharp rap on the passenger window set Bella's heart racing. The door on the passenger side flew open in a blast of icy air. 
a flurry of white fur and cashmere as Amelia Green settled down into the passenger seat. I thought I recognized your car. Amelia dropped her Versace bag on the floor and leaned back, balancing a Starbucks cup on her knee. Are you all right? Did I scare you? Bella stared. For a moment, the pungent odor of Amelia's perfume and seared latte overwhelmed her. Earth to Bella, Amelia said. How did it go at the doctor's this morning? Not bad news, I hope. No, no, Bella said, remembering her lie. Everything's fine. She'd been so lost in thought that she hadn't heard Amelia's Mercedes pull up an inch behind her BMW. Amelia rested her latte in Bella's coffee-stained cup holder and rummaged through her purse. Here, these are for you. She held out a small black cardboard box. Bella took the box from her and opened it. Business cards, printed on heavy cream paper with a gilt edging, embossed with Wolfband's rotating hologram logo and, of course, Amelia's name. Is something wrong? No, absolutely not. Bella rammed the lid back on the box and set it on the dash. Good, good. Amelia's lacquered red nails tapped the BMW's sun-bleached dashboard next to the box. Tell me, what's your take on this street? Bella cleared her throat. Judging by the cars in the driveways, middle class. No for sale signs, so settled. Low turnover. And the next step? Check out the homes that need repairs or look vacant. Which means? A quick and dirty estate sale. Sales price takes a hit, but the family will want to unload it and fast. So, you have been listening to me after all. Amelia took a thoughtful sip of the latte. Okay, instead of coming into the office this afternoon... Why don't you take my business cards and work the street? Knock on doors, chat them up, and shove a card in the mailbox if no one's at home. Bitch, Bella thought. Amelia, we need to talk. All right, Amelia's onyx eyes widened slightly. What's on your mind? There must be more money. There must be more money. Knocking on doors, dropping off your business cards. Well, I'm not sure that's the best use of my time right now. There, she'd stood up for herself at last. Actually, it's the best possible use of your time. I've got to start earning money. I can't go on working for free any longer. Amelia leaned back, latte in hand. This is an internship, Bella. No guarantee of income. You knew that when you signed on at Wolfband. But John started when I did. I know for a fact that you gave him that new condo development on Eglinton. He bagged two sales yesterday. He told me so himself. She tried to read Amelia's pale, perfect features, but couldn't. I don't want to be unkind, Amelia said at last. But that new condo is aimed at buyers under 40. John's young, vibrant. Buyers relate to him. But not to me. 
I see you working a suburban market. The suburbs, Bella thought. I'm better than that, she must muttered. Annoyance flashed across Amelia's face. Bella, real estate isn't easy money, despite what your friends may have told you. You have to beat the bushes for buyers, give up your weekends to run open houses, read the biz papers to spot trends, build your network. That's hours and hours of work that won't pay you a dime. The only time you make money is when you close a sale. Listen carefully. Close a sale. Yes, overcoming buyer's objections, John loved to brag about his priceless skill at overcoming objections. Of course, that goes without saying. But to close a sale, your buyer has to be begging to sign that offer. You've got to get them hungry. Amelia's onyx eyes flared with a gold glint. Then you go in for the kill. What crap, Bella thought. Tell me, why did you choose real estate? Amelia took a long, luxurious swallow of her latte. Nothing personal, but I'm not sure why you chose this business. What do you mean? Bella's skin prickled, as though she'd been attacked by a thousand little needles. Was that why Amelia had pulled over to chat? Much easier to fire her out of the office? Drama and histrionics relegated offstage? I don't sense that killer sales instinct in you. Come on, don't look so upset. Better you hear this now, from me, before you invest more time and effort and end up frustrated and disappointed. Amelia wiped a thin froth of latte from her upper lip. Still, to be fair, I do sense something in you, a certain doggedness, perhaps. Let's try to build on that. Now what? Threat, then carrot? Bella gripped the steering wheel to stop her fingers from squeezing the life out of Amelia's soft white throat. Okay, I should get going. Amelia leaned forward to check her reflection in the rearview mirror. With her little finger, she smoothed her scarlet lipstick, and as she did so, her white fur cuff fell back with a flash of light. Gold scales, ruby eyes. Bella let out a gasp of horror. Your... Your bracelet. What, this? Amelia held up her arm. A golden snake curled around her smooth wrist, the reptile's fangs biting its tail. He's my good luck piece. My snake oil, if you will. I, I hate snakes, Bella said. Amelia's glossy red lips curved into a smile. She slid the fur cuff back over her wrist, hiding the bracelet. There. Better now? I I was bitten by a snake. Bella could barely get the words out. The memory charged at her in irregular flashes, like crumpled black and white photographs. I was walking on the beach by our cottage. I felt something sharp, like I'd stepped on a piece of glass. She felt Amelia's slanted eyes on her, like a pressure. She must stop talking. She was being horribly unprofessional, but she couldn't stop the eruption of her words any more than she could stop the winter wind pummeling her car. Robert, my stepson, wanted to take me to the hospital. Barry, my ex, thought it was nothing, that I was overreacting. 
He said I'd stepped on a garter snake, but when it, when it rustled away in the leaves, it looked much bigger, and it had black spots, not stripes. But you're still here, Bella, alive and healthy. Bella's words stormed out with a rush of remembering. My leg swelled up. The pain was excruciating. Robert took me to the hospital. Barry wouldn't. He didn't believe me. She took a deep, shuddering breath. I'd stepped on a Masaga rattler. The doctors had to inject me with anti-venom. They had a hard time finding enough of the antidote because the poisonous snake bites here are so rare in Ontario. Anti-venom goes off if it's stored too long. I nearly lost my leg to that Massasauga rattler. Sounds like your divorce was a good idea, Amelia said after a time. Feel better for sharing? Yeah, I guess, Bella wiped her eyes. Good, now back to business. Tell me, of all the houses on the street, which one gives you the kick? Which one feels better than sex? Which one would you just kill to sell? Yet another test. Bella knew which house all right, but why bolster Amelia's puffed-up ego? In spite of herself, her eyes drifted to the large red-brick Victorian halfway up the street. Very good, Amelia flashed a smile. That one is a challenge. Okay, let's see what you can do with it. Off you go. I need to get back to the office. She dropped her empty Starbucks container in Bella's cup holder and gathered up her purse to leave. Finally, about time you effed off, Bella thought. Oh, don't forget these, Bella tapped the black box of business cards Bella had left on the dash. Like hell, Bella thought, gripping her own business cards in her coat pocket. This one's mine. The raw wind tossed the fringes on Bella's red coat and raked through her hair. Her scalp and ears were throbbing with cold by the time she'd crossed over the snow-dusted street. The sidewalk was crusted with ice and slippery as the devil. She teetered along on her spike-heeled ankle boots, balancing her handbag on her shoulder as she made for her Victorian prize. Amelia's AMG Mercedes roared to life behind her and took off down the street. For a moment, she felt utterly abandoned. Not a soul in sight. No letter carrier, no repair person, no one at all. The houses lining the street now struck her as tawdry. The Victorian, too, proved to be a letdown as she approached it. The footpath leading to its porch wasn't stone or brick, but stained concrete with long tufts of dried grass poking through the weathered cracks. Half of the front yard was snow-strewn gravel, probably a parking pad, while the other half was covered in scraggly weeds, yellow islets marooned in the shifting sea of dry snow. No car on the parking pad. What if Amelia knew that no one was home at this time of day? What if Amelia had set her up? Only one way to find out. Bella stumbled up the ice-slick stairs of the veranda. Someone, in their non-wisdom, had painted its railings, balustrade, and support columns a matte black color, 
but the paint was flaking off, revealing a bone-white undercoat. The large windows on either side of the front door were sealed with metal foil. Impossible to see inside. Through the transom window over the door, she noticed that the hall light was on. The light fixture wasn't elegant, but a functional white globe left over from the 1960s. She flicked the edges of her business cards in her coat pocket. I can do this. I know I can do this. The doorbell was a rectangular press button set in a yellowing plastic frame. She pressed it and listened. A scuffling noise behind the front door. For a moment, she had the eerie sensation of being watched, though she couldn't spot a peephole in the door. The scuffling stopped, but the door didn't open. Her legs stung with the cold. She'd turned to leave when she heard the click of a lock behind her. The door opened. Warm, humid air rushed out. Um, hi, she began. A tall, thin man wearing a black T-shirt and worn jeans looked out at her. His arms were ropey with muscle, his long hair gray and unkempt. She guessed his age to be about 50, far younger than the senior citizen she'd expected. Despite the cold, he was barefoot, his elongated pale toes bony, their opaque nails edged with black dirt. "'Can I help you with something?' he asked. She had her business card out. I'm Bella Bates of Wolfband Realty. I was passing by your neighborhood today, and I was wondering, um, I was curious to know if, well, you were thinking of putting your home on the market in the near future. Phew, that was a mouthful, she thought. I might be. He accepted her card, held it by the edges. Would you like to come in? What, um, oh, yes, thanks. She hesitated on the threshold. The front hall looked small and cramped, not inviting at all. She'd expected the house to be a center hall plan with a broad central staircase leading to the upper floors. Perhaps a wood-paneled library to her left, a parlor and dining room to her right. But, instead... The hallway was divided in two by a blank sheet of white. Wallboard, she realized, reaching out her left hand to touch it. And to her right, she saw a heavy brown curtain hiding the main room beyond it from view. No sign of the staircase to the upper levels. Judging by the short length of the entrance hall, someone had blocked it off with more sheets of faceless wallboard. A slithering sound. The man brushed back the curtain. He motioned her through the dark gap. She hesitated, then chided herself for being foolish. Here was her chance to see the house. She'd fought for this. What could possibly happen? I can do this. I know I can do this. She stepped past the curtain into the dark of the main room. Her first impression was one of deep disappointment. She'd been hoping for, praying for, rare beauty, an HGTV showpiece. 
Not that John, the chosen one, shared her love of Victorian and Art Deco. He raved about today's stark, disposable interiors, as bleak and interchangeable as a dentist's office. How he would have loved this place! The long, rectangular room was almost devoid of furniture, its white-painted walls entirely bare. Long ago, someone had shrouded its floor in beige linoleum, but over time the lino had worn away into layered islands and peninsulas over a sea of naked subflooring that felt gritty underfoot. Antique cast-iron radiators leaned against the walls like random sculptures. The ceiling soared ten feet above her head. Two antique light fixtures, 1930s, she supposed, cast down an anemic light. Their red, foul-marble bowls were festooned with cobwebs and encrusted with insect life. A long-battered table stretched across the far end of the room. Its surface was buried in papers, disposable dishes, and cups, and what appeared to be a number of empty aquariums. A laptop stood open, lights blinking. A hardback wooden chair leaned against one end of the table. The only other furniture, two antique plywood chairs, the kind she'd last seen in high school, stood in the center of the room, facing the table like audience seating before a stage. Please, sit down. He indicated one of the two side-by-side plywood chairs. He took the chair at the table and turned on the steel desk lamp resting on it. Its light pierced her eyes. She felt like a prisoner about to be interrogated. So, he said, studying her business card, you said you're with Wolfband Realty. It doesn't say so on here. No, I've just started with them. I may not stay on. I haven't decided. She felt herself babbling. You know how it is. Of course. Have you have you lived here long, in this house, I mean? Long enough, he smiled with a hint of yellowish teeth. What would you like to know? What wouldn't I like to know, Bella thought. Well, um, let's start with the basics. How many rooms do you have? I really don't know. Um, what? He shrugged. I don't live in most of the house. Oh, but how long did you say you've lived here? I didn't say. He thought for a moment, his brows knitting together. April 1996. But you could look that up at City Hall, couldn't you? Yes, of course. Twenty years. He'd lived here for twenty years, she thought. But surely not like this, like a destitute student. Where did he sleep, cook, food, shower? The way some people lived never ceased to amaze her. Perhaps, like herself, he was a casualty of divorce. Perhaps to keep the house he'd been forced to shed all his worldly possessions. She could relate to that. Now what? He seemed at ease, sitting there, legs crossed, not saying a damn thing. All right, she'd work to engage him, discover his innermost desires, his dreams. What Amelia did as naturally as breathing. He wasn't the type of man she normally encountered. 
The two dates she'd landed through the, that internet dating site were 60-ish, wrapped in soft, fat, and self-satisfaction. They'd expected sex right away, as though they were granting her a lovely favor. Horrible. This man looked hungry, too, but in a different way. His thinness extended to his face, the hollows and creases deep, the bones prominent. His eyes seemed strange. What was it? Their peculiar yellow-gray color? No, it was the iris of his left eye. It looked torn as though his dark pupil was bleeding across it. No doubt he was waiting her out to compel her to speak first. He probably had lots of realtors salivating over his large property. He probably loved baiting them. Your house is interesting, she lied. Can you tell me when it was built? I have no idea, and to be honest, I don't find this house particularly interesting. Damn, Amelia never asked direct questions. She always posed open-ended, soft questions. A what question. Get them to talk. What do you know about its history? History? His brow wrinkled, and she realized another unsettling thing about his face. He had no eyebrows at all. Why would you want to know that? Um, well, if you had some interesting anecdotes about this house, buyers might find them entertaining, enticing. Enticing? His lips twitched. Well, the guy over the back fence claims they ran a store in here back in the 1950s. When he was a kid, he'd come over to buy candy. Jawbreakers. Oh, yes, the candy that turned from black to red as you sucked on it, staining your tongue and teeth black and red, too. She forced a smile. That's exactly the kind of story I'm looking for. Anything else? Some frack guys got drunk and painted the outside bricks pink. This was a frat house? Come to think of it, the street did run close to the university, which would explain why houses looked so battered and run down. Student housing. Obviously, you had it painted back to a normal color. To a brick color, I mean. Obviously. Painted brick could be a problem, she thought. The house couldn't breathe. Humidity, mildew, you name it. In fact, she felt hot and sticky enough to unbutton her coat. She retrieved a tissue from her handbag and wiped her forehead. Hot flash? He looked amused. Excuse me? You're sweating. It's rather warm in here. The inside windows were running with moisture. Water dripped down the panes, etching dark lines of mildew along the wooden frames. Paint chips littered the window sashes and the floor beneath them like snow. Maybe he liked to crank up the heat to pretend he was barefoot on a beach, she thought. Cheaper and safer than traveling to Mexico. Her eyes wandered over the walls, the baseboards, the ceiling, searching for anything she might coax back to beauty. Nope, the room was too empty, more than empty, lifeless. Perhaps that bleak wallboard dividing the hall hid marvels waiting to be uncovered in the other half of the house, but judging by what she'd seen so far, 
That seemed unlikely. To sell the house, she'd have to play up its interior as an empty canvas. But what about that odor? Barry, her ex, always accused her of snuffling, of being overly fussy and fastidious. But this smell couldn't be ignored. She felt an urgency to define it. Earthy? Damp? It didn't belong in a house, nor would she associate it with a garden. What if it was a sewer backup? You're staring, he said. I'm studying this room, visualizing the before and after, she improvised. I love doing that with every home I visit. I feel like I'm healing it, bringing it back to life. Not the way it actually was before, you know, undiscovered and unappreciated, but the way it should have been. Is that how you feel, that you're undiscovered and unappreciated? What? For a moment, she wasn't sure that she'd heard him correctly. She forced out a laugh. That's rather personal. He smiled and waved a hand. Carry on with your visualizing. Don't let me stop you. She mustered her thoughts. What I meant to say, what I'm suggesting, is that a few enhancements could really up the sale price of your home. This room could be stunning if you put up high-quality chandeliers, wainscoting on the walls, and crown molding around the ceiling. At the very least, you'd need to install baseboards around the floor. He made an impatient gesture. I ripped all that junk out. What? You did what? Ornate busywork. Unnecessary. And confusing to the mind. That's strange. I mean, unusual way of looking at things, I... At the edge of her peripheral vision, something moved. A dark form like a tail vanished into the shadows under the nearby radiator. She stared, not sure what she had seen, if she had seen it. She stood up. Something's under that rad. He lifted one shoulder, unperturbed. Right over there, she pointed. I saw it. You don't have rats, do you? He laughed. He actually laughed. No, Bella Bates, we don't have rats. Rats wouldn't survive long in here. I definitely saw something. But what? In the murky, diffused light of the room, how could she be sure? And unless she crouched down beside the radiator for a closer look, stuck her hand into the dark underneath, she gripped the back of her chair. Would you like to look around, he asked. She opened her mouth to say no, that she'd seen enough, that she needed to get back to the office. But that would be giving in. Amelia would win. John, the chosen one, would sell it out from under her. I can do this. I know I can do this. Still deciding, he asked. She straightened up. Of course, yes, thank you. I do need to do a thorough look around. She set her purse and groped through it for her notebook and pen. I thought all you real estate types used a tablet, he said. Nope, I'm old school. She clutched her notebook to her chest, determined to project cheerful efficiency. You'll want to see the kitchen. Yes, the kitchen and the bathroom. But I'd like to look upstairs first. She was determined to see what lay behind that wallboard in the hall. We don't use the upper floor. I walled it off. Whatever for? To seal in the heat. 
But it feels like 40 degrees in here, you fool, she thought. She'd been so chilled from sitting outside in the car that at first the stinking tropical heat hadn't bothered her. But now sweat leaked from her armpits and trickled down her back. She longed to shed her coat, but instinct urged her to keep it on. She wiped her forehead with the crumpled tissue, knowing she'd missed something. Yes, he'd said, we, not I. He'd said, we don't use the upper floor. She tried to spot signs of the other person, but saw nothing. Do you have a tenant, she asked. Why do you ask? Well, if I understand you correctly, you've walled off half your ground floor and all of your upstairs, like a makeshift semi. When he shrugged, she went on. That's vacant space, an underutilized asset. You should put it to work for you, earn you some money. I don't think more people in this house would be a good idea. Shall we? He gestured toward the arched doorway at the far end of the room, beyond the table. All Bella could see as she passed the table was yet another bare facade of wallboard beyond the archway. Where was the hall that led to the rooms at the back of the house? How exactly do you get through to the kitchen, she asked. I'll show you. Go ahead. He waved her through the doorway. She hesitated, notebook pressed to her chest, then eased closer to where he stood. In the dim light, she could make out a narrow passage to her right. A few feet along, it veered sharply left at a 90-degree angle, presumably continuing on to the kitchen at the back of the house. But why the wallboard? What feature of the house had he hidden this time? Don't you want to look at the kitchen, he asked. She shook her head and took a step back. That's when she spotted it, a steel door handle sticking out of the wallboard panel to her left. That must be the way into the unused half of the house. Why don't I take a look in here first? She seized the handle. It turned easily enough, and a portion of the wallboard swung open like a door, revealing only dark beyond. Don't you have a light, she asked. He sighed audibly and reached through the doorway, pressing close to her as he did so. She could feel his sinewy body, breathe in his strange smell, part male sweat, part unwashed clothes. The click of a switch. A faint light came on. She stepped free of him into the space beyond the door. This room, too, was large, the mirror image of the one she'd left behind, except its walls were lined with bookshelves, row upon row upon row of books. Stacks of paper rested on the shelves or were stacked on the bare wooden floor. I don't understand, she said. What is this place, a storeroom? He didn't reply, but even in the weak light she caught his smirk of a smile. Where was the staircase? She should have been standing immediately in front of it. I don't see the stairs, she said. I ripped them out. What? You did what? By now her eyes had adjusted enough to the dimness that she could see a large hole in the ceiling, framed by a crumbling rim of plaster and broken subflooring. But, but why? They were falling apart. Haven't gotten round to rebuilding them yet. 
What if you need to go upstairs to check for leaks or wiring or... I use a ladder when I have to go up. I'll set it up for you. Climb up. Take a look around. Take as long as you want, he smiled again. Her neck flared with electric warnings. Yes, she could climb up only to have him remove the ladder. She'd be trapped upstairs. No one knew where she was except Amelia. No one. And when she didn't turn up at the office, would Amelia look for her? Call the police? No. She'd assume that she, Bella, had quit real estate, exactly as she predicted. And Robert, her stepson? They only saw each other every few weeks. I could lie there forever. No one would find me. She managed a normal voice. Sorry, I can't climb a ladder in these boots. I'll get the details from City Hall, as you suggested. He filled the doorway, blocking her way back to the main room. A shuffling noise behind him startled her. What was that? She heard breathing in the narrow hallway that led to the kitchen. The other person. Who is that? she said more loudly. She groped for her handbag, then remembered she'd left it on a chair in the main room. Her cell phone was in it. She heard something or someone scurry away, something much larger than a mere rat, heading toward the back of the house. I have to get out of here. No choice, she squeezed past the man and charged back into the main room. Her purse was gone. Where's my bag? Someone stole my bag. He held up a hand. No one's stolen anything. My wallet, keys, and phone are in there. I'll look after it. Stay here. He ducked down the narrow passage, turned the corner, and vanished towards the back of the house. She waited and waited, counted to twenty, then fifty. Where the hell was he? Instinct urged her to get out, to go back to the office, call the police, but everything was in her bag, including her car keys. She took a step, hesitated, forced herself to go after him, felt her way down the narrow hall, turned the sharp corner. Watery daylight streamed through an open door at the end of the hall. She groped her way into a cramped, outdated kitchen. Her eyes took in aging appliances, battered cupboards, and filthy countertops. The far end of the room gave in to dripping windows, blank against the gray, snow-filled sky. No sign of the man. Where was the back door, the way out? She moved closer to the windows. A shallow set of steel-edged stairs led down from the kitchen to a landing at ground level. A shadowy figure hovered on the landing. Oh, my God! She had an impression of dark, straggling hair and hunched shoulders in a ragged hoodie. Abruptly, the person vanished, running footsteps. Where did they go? More footsteps. Her heart was beating so frantically she wheezed for hair air. The gray-haired man appeared on the shallow steps leading up to the kitchen. He bounded up into the kitchen. There you go. He tossed her bag onto the countertop beside her, then busied himself at the sink on the opposite side of the room. She grabbed her purse. That, that person took it. Who is he? Don't worry about him. It's over. Let it go, she thought. She eased out a breath. Normal. She had to act normal. So, 
So this is your kitchen. Obviously. The cupboard doors bore so many coats of beige paint they looked enameled. Dirty dishes and cooking pots crowded the counters. Strangely enough, a stainless steel mixmaster and a set of top-of-the-line carving knives squatted among them. The knife stand was shaped like a man, the knife blades skewering him like a murder victim. She'd bought the exact same set the day Barry signed their divorce papers. The man was still busy at the sink. She shoved her notebook back into her bag and slipped over to the far end of the kitchen. One quick look out the windows at the back garden, then she'd be off. The windows framed the back end of the kitchen on three sides. He must have knocked out the back wall separating the kitchen from the enclosed back porch, then put in the stairs down to the ground level. Impossible to see through the watery mist covering the panes. She found the crumpled tissue in her coat pocket. Balancing at the top of the stairs, she leaned over, wiped off the window beside her, and looked out. Deep snow blanketed a wilderness of tangled weeds, tall enough to reach over her head. A ten-foot board fence stretched behind them. What would happen if she left through the back door? What if there was no gate out of the yard? She could almost feel the chill of snow on her thighs as she struggled through the straw of the dead plants, screaming to be heard by a disinterested neighbor. She shivered. You need to cut your grass. I'm surprised the city hasn't made trouble for you about it. No one's complained, he said over his shoulder. Why does it bother you if I don't cut my grass? You'll get animals, rats and mice, even even snakes. The memory of the Massasaga rattlers seized her. She hadn't been raking leaves as she'd blurted out to Amelia. That was a lie. She'd run across the snake in the long weeds by the beach. How it had hissed, a sizzling, venomous whisper that struck her to the heart. She'd seized a rock and hit it again and again. In its dying throes, it had lashed out and bitten her. Barry had tried to stop her from killing it, screamed that snakes reduced the insect population and controlled the spread of West Nile virus, making it clear that the life of a venomous reptile was worth far more than hers. Are you all right? The man had moved over to the refrigerator next to the sink. The freezer doors stood open. She nodded. He was fiddling with a frozen package. She felt her eyes drawn to it. Through its thick, translucent plastic cover, she could make out dozens of pink, meaty shapes, like miniature chicken thighs. What is that? Pet food, he said. It's called Pinky. He held it out so she could see. Oh, my God! The legs, lumps had little legs, heads, and tails. That looks like, that looks like animals. Yes, baby mice. I'm going to be sick. Washroom. I need the washroom. He swore, strode back to the hallway, and flung open a door that looked like a panel in the wallboard. She grabbed her purse and charged past him through the opening and slammed the door behind her. Acrid bile ate at her throat. She staggered to the toilet, but even in the anemic light from the bare bulb overhead, it looked crusty and foul. She leaned over the tiny cracked sink, gagging, struggling to breathe. I will not be sick. 
I will not be sick. What the hell did he do with frozen baby mice? Feed them to his cat? But she hadn't seen a cat. She twisted the tap over the sink. The water ran rusty at first, then cleared. She splashed some on her face, sipped a little. It tasted faintly metallic. I need to leave. I've stayed here far too long. She stared at her reflection in the black-mottled mirror of the medicine cabinet. Now she understood the reason for the wallboard and tight passageway between the kitchen and the large room where he worked and ate. He'd built this washroom between them so he could live on the first floor forever. This was where he took a shower, if he washed at all. No windows, no ventilation, disgusting. Where did he find that horrid pink tub? From the city dump. Where else would he find something so cheap and obsolete? He probably sourced the city dump for everything in this vile house. He wasn't a man, he was a rat, a garbage rat, who'd obliterated every vestige of beauty, gnawing and chewing away at it like a malignant parasite to feed his pathological compulsions. Nothing could save this house. It was a knockdown, a write-off. She'd swing the Rutgers ball herself if she could. She straightened her coat, hitched up her purse, and fumbled for the door handle. Her hands glided over smooth wallboard. Oh my God, there's no handle. I'm trapped. He trapped me. She jostled the door, shoved it, crashed her weight against it. No luck. Locked. Locked from the outside. She fumbled through her bag found her keys, but her wallet and cell phone were still gone. He took them. He tricked me. Her heart went into overdrive. She banged on the door, shouted for help. No one can hear me. The house has double brick walls. There's no one outside in the street. She pounded on the door, oblivious to the throbbing pain in her fists. Let me out. My boss is right outside. My boss. She braced her back against the door. I've got to get a grip. Think. A long black stain was streaking down the center of the tub. For a heartbeat, the stain seemed to move. How could that happen? She blinked. The stain was moving, bleeding down the length of the muddy enamel, heading for the dark hole of the drain. She gulped for air, too terrified to scream. The black fluid swerved away from the drain, rustled up the side of the tub. Snake! she shrieked in pure terror. The door opened in a whoosh of air. She crashed out into the blinding light of the kitchen. I shouted for help, she slumped against the fetid counter, breathless as fish out of water. She dared not look behind her for fear of spotting the dark thing slithering out of the tub. Why, why the hell didn't you open the door? I just did. You ignored me deliberately. I couldn't hear you. I was in the other room. He held a sheaf of papers in his hand. The door opens in. You were pushing instead of pulling. There's no handle. And he knew it. Sure there is. Let me show you. Stay where you are. She groped for the dangling scarves of her coat. I'm leaving. But first I want my wallet and cell phone back. He swore. Give me a minute. He pushed by her and ran down the stairs at the end of the kitchen. Now, while he's gone. 
She stumbled over to the stabbed homunculus and grabbed a knife. It's only to protect myself. The knife glided out as smooth as silk. Quickly, she slipped it into the side pocket of her coat. She waited for him again, waited and waited. The man wasn't coming back, and he wasn't going to give her back her wallet and phone, or he'd have done so already. No, he'd tried to fool her into leaving without them. She crept down the steel-edged stairs to the landing. A set of steep wooden stairs led farther down, away from the landing into the dark, the dark of the basement. That's where he'd taken her things. That's where that other person was hiding. She dare not confront the two of them together. She had to get out, now. She rushed over to the back door, a brass bolt lock shone there. No key. She'd have to go out the front. She turned and ran straight into him. He stood at the top of the basement stairs, her cell phone in his fist. Is this yours? He was tall, so much taller than she, his sinewy muscles repellent. She managed to find her voice. Where's my wallet? That's going to take time. Give me your phone number. I'll get it back to you. Do you expect me to believe you? I need my wallet. Everything's in there. My ID, my credit card. There must be more money. There must be more money. I'm calling the police. She lunged for her cell phone. He sidestepped her. For a breathless moment, she hovered at the top of the stair. Her spiked heels skittered on the rickety steps. She slipped lost her balance, and crashed down. Each step was a fist pummeling a bolt of pain into her. Her arms, legs, and ribs were on fire. She landed on her hands and knees. Earth crunched under her bleeding fingers. The strange smell of the house engulfed her. She staggered to her feet. Pain shot up from her left ankle. Light suffused the basement, a humming blue-white glow leaked from row upon row of opaque white lozenges, glass tanks stretching the full length of the house. The dusty undersides of the floorboards loomed overhead, and heat pressed down on her, fetid, suffocating heat. And at the far end, a dark figure scuttled between a row of glowing boxes, bent over, hooded, and definitely human the other person in the house. They were running an illegal grow-up. All the clues had been there. The heat, the moisture, the strange odors of earth and mildew. Her scalp crawled with fear. Rationalization skittered through her mind like ants. Weed's harmless. Legal any day now. Never blame anyone trying to earn a living. We all need money. There must be more money. There must be more money. But her throat closed up, crushing her breath. He'd followed her down. She could sense him behind her. His stale body odor flowed over her. You shouldn't be down here, he said. I've been a fool, she thought. Now that I know, they're going to kill me. Get away from me, she shoved her hand into her coat pocket, clutched the knife. Behind the milky white panes of the glass tanks, things stirred. Not plants, but animals. 
restless, moving, twitching, sliding, roiling, snakes, an endless sea of snakes curling and uncurling, forked tongues flickering, dead obsidian eyes watching, fangs glistening in open mouths. They were dripping over the sides of the tanks, seething over the earth floor, slithering, sliding toward her. She couldn't scream because she didn't have the breath. Don't move! Elongated fingers with bluish nails gripped her shoulder. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. Ha! A demon leapt up in front of her, bristling black hair, a hideously contorted face. She wheeled back, arms flailing. Ha! A writhing spotted snake leapt into her face. She shrieked in a bursting crescendo of terror. Her vision vanished. The knife flew in her hand. She lashed out, striking again and again. Light exploded off the blade. Water, water was everywhere. Salt on her tongue. Cries and screams deadened her ears. Her arm pounded down and down. She was savaging the raw flesh of Barry's turkey, striking again and again. Ahead, behind, up, down, until she was slicing nothing but air. An icy needle of pain pierced her whirling terror, deep and agonizing, striking her leg above her ankle boot. A pile of clothes on the floor snagged her foot. She wrenched her leg free. Her arm throbbed with pain from wrist to shoulder. Red, all she could see was red, a blackish red that clashed with her scarlet coat. She stumbled toward the daylight streaming down the stairs, tripped over a fleshy roll of something blocking the bottom step. Her spike heels dug into it before she crawled upstairs. Memory skittered, jumped, and vanished. Images of ice, stairs, and falling. She shook with cold. Through the windshield, snow whirled down the middle of the deserted street. I'm back in my car. How did I get here? The steering wheel felt sticky under her black-stained hands. A heavy, wet object weighed down her thighs. The knife. The throbbing in her legs was agony. She twisted her foot and looked down. Her calf had swelled enormously, puffing over the top of her broken boot. And there, at the edge, two scarlet pinholes. This can't be happening. I can't breathe. A bang on the passenger window. Bella, can't you hear me? Open the door. Bella stretched out a finger and disengaged the door locks. Even that felt like an effort. A burst of cold wind, Amelia's musky scent filled her nostrils, seared latte and a sweet whiff of afternoon sex. Oil of sales glands, snake oil. How did it go, Amelia asked from the passenger seat. I, I think I killed, Bella panted. She slumped over the steering wheel, clinging to it as though she were being swept away in a current. Amelia hadn't noticed the stains, the gore. Not yet. She was too busy checking the rear-view mirror. Bella caught a glimpse of the tousled blonde hair in the reflection. John, her rival, sitting smugly behind the wheel of Amelia's white Mercedes. 
Never mind, Amelia's finger waved to John. It wasn't fair of me to give you such a challenge. But you were keen, so why not? Come on, cheer up. Look upon this as a didactic experience. On and on she went, babbling away like a parrot in an echo chamber. Through the drone of her words, Bella watched the sky darken. Didactic experience. If she says that one more time, I'll... Amelia's voice ebbed and flowed. Teardown for sure. Professor and his autistic son, Bella blinked, surfaced. Son, what did you say? I've known Eric for years. He's a math professor. Didn't I mention that when we were chatting earlier? I'm sure I did. Amelia didn't bother to hide her impatience. His son is autistic. Eric gave up his life to look after him. That house is destroying them. I thought that you, being older, might relate to Eric better. Persuade him to dump it. She leaned forward. Is something wrong? Laughter erupted in Bella's throat, a bright bubble. She was shaking with it, her shoulders, her thighs, her breasts. S -s snake oil. What are you talking about? You knew they kept snakes. Yes, their therapy for Eric's son. Bella's vision was closing in. Her lips felt numb. I told you I hated snakes, but you sent me anyway. They keep the snakes locked up in the basement. You shouldn't have had a problem. A snake bit me. Bella shook her head to ward off the encroaching darkness. Oh, God, I, I killed them. What? You killed the snakes? God, you never listened to anyone but yourself. I killed them, you stupid effing bitch. I killed them. Bella raised the dripping knife to tear Amelia to pieces as she deserved, but her fingers slid off its handle like jelly. Blood splattered over Amelia's white fur coat. Amelia screamed. In the distance, Bella heard a door open and someone shout for John. Snow and wind filled the car. Oh God, what have I done? I killed them. I killed them. With her last ebbing breath, she lifted her scarlet Medusa's face and howled. And that was Snake Oil by M. H. Calway, which was featured in Thirteen Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem. Carrick Publishing, 2017. And now for our second giveaway contest, I'd like you to go to our Dead to Rights Facebook page and look for the question, what was the name of M.H. Calway's protagonist in Snake Oil, the wannabe real estate agent? And just to give you a clue, the answer we're looking for is Bella Bates. And to all the people who correctly answer Bella Bates at our Facebook page, you'll be entered for the draw to win a free copy of 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem. Thank you very much for joining us today at Dead to Rights. And I want to thank M.H. Calway, Madeline Harris Calway, for joining us for today's interview. And I also want to thank Ted Carrick for the wonderful theme music, Eyes of Gold, featured in this podcast. Hope you'll join us again next week, and we'll look forward to, to being with you.
dusty road, man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. Never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides. Let it 